And I'd also, uh, before we read, ask you um, if you will try to overlook the sound of the voice from the pastor today. I'm talking in the bottom register, but at least I'm able to talk today. Uh, Wednesday night, after I finished Bible study, I completely lost voice. I w it was a croak at best. And on Thursday, um, there was nothing there. Friday, I had to be down for a state council meeting and a minister's conference on Friday evening. And then Saturday morning, Betsy and I were down uh, below Waimama at our camp church's campground in Waimama. Uh, down below Tampa at, at Waimama, and um, no, no voice, no, you know, just raspy at best, wheezing and everything. So um, if you'll try to listen past it, I'll try to get through. I'm not feeling bad. I actually feel pretty good. I just sound like I'm on death's doorstep. So um, don't get your hopes up. I've told my wife it's too early to think about cashing in on that life insurance policy. But I've also put Pastor Larry on notice that if the voice gives out in the middle, I'm going to tag him in and he can finish the message. So uh, you pray and we'll go as long as we can. Matthew chapter 16, let's begin reading at verse 21, shall we? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now Lord, we thank you for today that we can gather in your house and we can join together with people of like faith in worship of you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for, for sensing your nearness. And we thank you already for how we have been able to enter in to declare your faithfulness in this service. Now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive your word that we will hear not so much what or how the preacher speaks, but we will hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the message. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will give me strength and, and 
functionality to be able to communicate clearly. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you, particularly those sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to you, O Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. I pray these things and believe you for them, for I pray them in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If I could be granted one wish as a pastor, my greatest desire for the people of this congregation is that you would all die. Now that I have your attention, let's look at the passage which forms the text for the message today. If you back up just a few verses, back to verse 13, you find Jesus coming with his followers into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Some of you have been to Israel with Betsy and me, and, and you'll remember this place. There's water flowing in channels with lots of green foliage. It's the, the banyas. As you continue further, you come to a little hill. To the right are the ruins of a pagan temple, the Grotto of Pan, where sacrifices, both animal and human, were offered. To the left of that temple is a large opening in the hillside, like a, like a giant cave that plunges to a yawning chasm below. And this was known as the gates of hell. Standing on that site, Jesus asked his followers, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? They answered that some thought he was John the baptizer, others thought he was Elijah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked, but who do you say? I am. Simon Peter answered with one of the most powerful, profound expressions of faith ever recorded. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you remember the response of Jesus? He praised Peter, called him blessed, said that Peter had been given a revelation from God. He even went so far as to say that the faith, the kind of faith that caused Peter to make this profession was the kind of faith upon which the Lord would build his church. And this church would be so powerful that even the gates of hell would not be able to stand against its invading force. What a dramatic illustration of Jesus' words. Standing in front of the place of pagan worship, gazing into the gaping mouth of the cave, Jesus says, this is the key to victorious living. When the church begins to march in faith in him, there is no ungodly power on earth or in heaven that could withstand its forward progress. Talk about a statement to elicit an applause of praise. <laughs> there you have it. See, talk about an advancing kingdom, and the church shouts, amen. Talk about marching forward in triumph to establish the rulership of Jesus and the organ swells and there's a great rejoicing that comes into the congregation. At that point, most preachers would take their seat and the service would be dismissed on a high note. Everybody would go out talking about what a great service it was and they just couldn't wait to get back next week to hear more about the victorious church. Jesus, however, can't seem to let well enough alone. 
Instead, he starts talking about what the disciples can expect when they go back to Jerusalem. He talks about his impending persecution and suffering and ultimately death. Now, admittedly, he also says he's going to be raised on the third day. But once they hear he's going to be killed, everything just shuts down. They have no frame of reference for being raised. Killing, they understand. Resurrection, not so much. The killing part so unnerves them, the resurrection part doesn't even register. (laughs) If you stop and think about it, the only people who were worried about Jesus coming out of the tomb were the people responsible for putting him in the tomb. The elders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they got it. They remembered the claims of Jesus about rising from the dead. So they rolled a stone in place, they sealed the tomb, and they placed a guard out front to make sure Jesus stayed put. It was the enemies of Jesus who understood his claims about a resurrection. But his followers completely missed it until it actually happened. Now, I don't know if Peter thought because he had just had such an insightful revelation about who Jesus was... So now he had a better understanding about the plan and purpose of God and had suddenly become more spiritual or if it was just Peter being brash, sandal-in-the-mouth Peter. For whatever reason, Peter pulled Jesus to the side and rebuked him. (laughs) Can you imagine the audacity? Peter rebuking the Son of God, the nerve. But all this talk about dying is too much for Peter. Since he had such an incredible spiritual revelation, it's obvious to him Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about. So Peter decides to set him straight, enlighten him. Now, Lord, Lord, look, 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 let me explain something. You don't want to be talking like that. we got a pretty good thing going on right now. I mean, you sure got everybody stirred up when you talked about the victorious church marching against the gates of hell. You don't want to ruin things. Don't you know people will leave when you start talking about suffering? Don't you remember how they scattered when you told them that the foxes have holes holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? Don't you remember how they all forsook you when you told them that unless they uh, ate your flesh and drank your blood, they could have no part with you? Listen, Jesus, people are starting to get to know you. Your popularity is increasing. Crowds are flocking to you from all over. We've had a, we've had a meeting with the architect about building a big sanctuary, a, a, a new ministry center. All this talk about pain and suffering and persecution and death. You're going to drive a lot of people away talking like that. Well, Jesus isn't in the mood for Peter's foolishness. He turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. That word Satan means tempter, adversary, stumbling block. In the Greek New Testament, the word is scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. Peter, your suggestion that I can bypass the religious and governmental powers that revolt against the message of love, hope, healing, and mercy is against every plan and purpose God has ordained for my life. You're putting your own interests ahead of God's interests. The very idea is scandalous. Peter wanted a Messiah without a cross, but that is an impossibility. The words of Peter were motivated by the same demonic spirit that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, turn stones into bread. 
satisfy the desires of the flesh. Jump off the temple, demonstrate miracle powers to impress the people. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you the world without a cross. But Satan couldn't give an eternal crown of glory. The temptation was to take a shortcut, an easier path. It was a selfish motivation. Jesus, however, had a laser focus on his purpose and his mission. He understood the fulfillment of that purpose and mission was predicated upon going through the persecution, suffering, and ultimately death that lay before him. He understood why it was so important for him to embrace the cross. Get behind me, Satan. I'll not be dissuaded by you. I'll not be distracted by you. I'll not be defeated by you. I'll fulfill my purpose, my mission, my destiny. Not only does Jesus talk about what it will take for him to fulfill his purpose, mission, and destiny, but then in verse 24, he tells the disciples that it's going to cost them something to be his followers. First, he talks about three requirements of discipleship. Now, this isn't something you hear a lot about these days. Nobody wants to talk about it, but I need to tell you there is a price to pay if you would follow Jesus. This way is not for wimps. It's not for the faint-hearted. There are no roses on this racetrack. This was the message Paul wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 12. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why don't you just look over at your neighbor and say, now that's a good word for you today. You're going to be persecuted. In verse 24, Jesus identifies the cost of being his follower. It begins, he says, with surrender. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, here it is, he must deny himself. That's surrender. Surrender of your will. Surrender of your plans. Surrender of your ideas. Surrender of your goals. Surrender of your dreams. Surrender of your priorities. To deny yourself is to understand that as a follower of Jesus, you no longer own yourself. He owns you. And since he owns you, that means you cannot own anything without letting Jesus have access to it. It means he has a right to use it as he wills, at his will. You can't decide to take a path without consulting Jesus. You can't decide on a future without letting Jesus have the final word. To deny yourself is to make what Jesus wants your number one priority. Being a follower of Jesus only happens when you surrender your will to his will. It only happens when you deny yourself. Here's what I know. You don't gain muscle and get physically fit by gazing at posters of bodybuilders. It's going to mess with some of you, I know. I'm going to bust somebody else's bubble. You don't lose weight by dreaming about being thin or by casting out the spirit of fat and praying for a spirit of skinny. (laughs) 
You don't learn to play the piano by listening to virtuoso pianists. If you want to get physically fit, you deny yourself the comfort of the couch and get in the gym and exercise. If you want to lose weight, you deny yourself the cake and ice cream and eat the vegetables. I know some of you think I quit preaching and went to meddling right there. If you want to play the piano, you deny yourself the company of friends and get alone in the practice room. Name any skill you want to, any ability, any goal. There is a price to pay to develop that skill and that ability. In the same way, if you're going to follow Jesus, there's a price of self-denial that must be paid. The Apostle Paul prayed in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here's what I know. Everybody wants to share in the power of his resurrection. Nobody wants to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. But that's the requirement of discipleship. It's self-denial, surrender. There's a second requirement Jesus identifies. Y'all doing okay with this? It's going to get really good here. Second requirement is sacrifice. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and here it is, and take up his cross. Hearing the word cross doesn't seem to have the impact in our modern culture that it had in the time of Jesus. You know, we wear crosses around our neck as a piece of adornment. We hang crosses on the wall in our homes. You, you can't see it right now because it's covered over by this screen, but behind the screen where we're projecting the service and the points of the sermon, there is a beautiful stained glass cross. When Jesus talked about the cross, however, those words weren't pretty. They weren't comforting to the people in that culture. In Jesus' day, the cross meant nothing less than an instrument used by the Romans to execute criminals and political rebels. It was one of the most painful, humiliating, shameful acts of cruelty imaginable. You know, too often we've, we've equated taking up your cross with living with an unsaved and brutish husband or tolerating a nagging wife. That isn't what it means. Taking up your cross isn't enduring an illness or a disease or a physical handicap. Taking up your cross means your willingness to endure any hardship for the cause of Jesus. Any shame, any embarrassment, any persecution, any hardship. Taking up your cross means literally the death of self. It means you will sacrifice your life and resources for the cause of Jesus just as he sacrificed everything for the cause of you. The way of the true disciple is the way of the cross. The way of holiness and godliness is the way of the cross. The way of spiritual power is the way of the cross. There are, no, there are no shortcuts. There are no alternate routes. The way of the disciple is to embrace the cross. We are not called to prosperity. We are not called to perfect physical health. 
We are not called to positions of power, but everyone who would follow Jesus is called to embrace the cross. Oh, we would prefer it to be easier. We would prefer it to be more pleasant, not quite so gruesome, but there is no other way to be his disciple. You can't abandon the cross and follow Jesus. You can't preach another plan and get people right with God. The only way to be in a right relationship with the Heavenly Father, the only way to live a life pleasing and acceptable to the Almighty, the only way to know the joy of sins forgiven and to inherit eternal life is to embrace the cross. Oh, I know this isn't a popular message. This message is ridiculed by an unbelieving world. It's dismissed by the church crowd who want to focus only on the prosperity. It's what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you want to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection, you must first know the fellowship of his suffering. If you would live with him, you must first die to self. If you would rule and reign with him, you must first be crucified with him. If you, mu you must accept the work of Jesus on the cross as the only possible payment for your sin. You must trust in the crucified Christ as your only hope of salvation. You must take your self-will and your pride in personal achievement and ability, and you must nail it to the cross so that it is no longer you who lives, but it is Christ living in you so that the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. To be a follower of Jesus requires surrender. It, re it requires sacrifice. Then I want you to see that it, in re it requires and involves service. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and here it is, and follow me. This isn't just something you do by coming to church on Sunday morning or to Bible study on Wednesday night. This is a daily activity. This means you are a companion of Jesus. You are actively seeking fellowship with him and reflecting his likeness. Only when you are surrendered and sacrificed are you able to serve. You know, I've been part of the church all my life. I like to say I was going to church nine months before I was born. And I've been serving as a pastor almost 40 years. In that time, I've seen just about everything there is to see in the church realm. I've seen, I've seen people get upset because they weren't chosen to lead a team or chair a committee. I've seen people get offended because somebody else got picked for a position and they didn't. I've seen people in the choir getting feelings hurt because somebody else got selected to sing the solo instead of them. They go off and pout can't figure out why God is using that person and not them for this particular venture. I want to tell you, it isn't that hard to figure out. It's because God only uses broken vessels. The very fact that you're upset over somebody else being used instead of you is evidence you're not broken. 
you aren't dead. Dead people don't get offended. God only uses those who have embraced the cross, those who have died to self, those who have been through the crucible and endured the suffering in order to be conformed to his likeness. See, what you don't understand, when you see somebody up here preaching, when you see somebody up here ministering, and you think, oh man, what I wouldn't give to that. Oh, you don't have a clue what you're talking about because you don't know what they've been through to get to where they are. When you're surrendered and when you're sacrificed, then and only then are you fit to serve. And I'll tell you this, the follower of Jesus isn't just sitting over on the sidelines. The follower of Jesus isn't waiting for a special invitation. The follower of Jesus is up and about the Father's business. I was talking this week to one of the people we help support in our missions giving. And he was talking about the need for ministers and pastors in some of the states where the church of God is very small and has a minimal presence. There are places, particularly out west and in the northwestern states, where there is potential for a great harvest. But, but he was bemoaning the fact we don't have pastors and we don't have leaders. We need people out there to, to help, help do this. But it's going to be tough. Meanwhile... There are people who say they've been called by God to preach and the minister who's sitting around waiting for an opportunity. But when you ask them about helping fill the need in one of these mission states, they decline, oh, no, no. I mean, they're waiting for an existing church to open up. They're looking for a position with a good salary and an easy place to live and, and a guaranteed pension. Now, I know everybody isn't called or equipped to be a church planter. At the same time, I wonder how many of those who have the touch of God on their lives are really surrendered and sacrificed. See, when you're truly a follower of Jesus, you go where he says go, when he says go. When you're truly a follower of Jesus, you serve where there is a need. You don't wait for a special invitation. You don't wait for a special gifting. You find a need and you fill it. You find a hurt and you heal it. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your heart and you do it as unto the Lord. You know, you don't need a special gifting of the Holy Spirit to pick up trash in the parking lot on your way into the, into the building when you see there's stuff out there. You just see it there and you pick it up and you bring it in and you put it in the trash can. You don't need a calling of God when you see somebody hurting to go over and extend a, a helping hand and a shoulder for them to cry on and somebody to support them and care for them. You don't need anything other than the Lord who is already living in your life. Whatever your hand finds to do, just do it. And can I just tell you, you don't need to come to the pastor and, and get a special permission slip signed for you, for you to do that. Just do it. Just minister. The life of a follower of Jesus is a life of service. You aren't too young and you never get too old. You serve and you keep serving until the day the Lord calls you home. Well, those are the requirements of a disciple that Jesus lays out. Surrender, sacrifice, service. But not only does Jesus talk about the requirements of discipleship in this passage, 
he goes on and he talks about the rewards of discipleship. First, he identifies the great paradox. In verse 25, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now watch this. In God's economy, you can choose whatever path you desire. You can choose to follow the easy path of personal desire, or you can choose to follow the difficult path of discipleship. What you cannot choose is where that path will lead or the, or the consequences of your choice. Each one of those paths leads to a destination, and each one of those destinations has a consequence. You can choose any path you want, but you can't choose the destination or the consequence. Choose the easy path, the selfish, satisfy your own will, worldly life, and it leads to loss and eternal separation from God. Choose the difficult path, the surrendered, sacrificial, servanthood path of the disciple, and it leads to eternal life. You cannot choose the easy path and get to eternal life because that path doesn't lead there. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. See, God's ways are always countercultural. His ways are exactly opposite of the way most of us think. See, in the economy of God, if you want to rule, you must become a servant. If you want to become great, you must become the least. If you want to increase, you must decrease. If you want to get, you must give. In God's economy, the way up is down. In God's economy, if you want to live, you must die. Not only does Jesus identify the great paradox, but he also promises the grand prize. In verse 25, he promises those who lose their lives for his sake will find it. Then in verse 27, he promises, for the Son of Man is going to come the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Of this you can be certain. There is no way God will ever ignore the sacrifices you make in serving him. You are not just working for time, you're investing for eternity. See, your big day isn't here yet. You're only a pilgrim and a stranger seeking a better country. Your big day is yet to come. Your big day happens when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are resurrected. And those who are still alive and remaining at the coming of the Lord are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Your big day happens when you sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Your big day happens when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's why Paul wrote in, in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's why he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. That's why he wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, It is a trustworthy statement. For if we 
died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Listen, listen, listen. When you embrace the cross, not only is there an eternal reward, but there's some blessings and benefits even in the midst of carrying the cross. I'm trying to tell you today that all you ever really need is right here in the cross of Jesus. See, I'll tell you, when you embrace the cross, you have the prescription for wholeness. That's the meaning of the prophet's words in Isaiah 53 and 5. See, in the cross, there's healing of the spirit. He was wounded for our transgressions. There's healing of the soul. He was bruised for our iniquities. There's healing of conflict and relationships. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. There's physical healing of the body. By his wounds, we are healed. Not only is there prescription for wholeness, but when you embrace the cross, there's protection. That's what it means in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where the apostle Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I want to tell you, every force of evil is subject to the child of God because of the authority of the name of Jesus. And that authority has been given through the shedding of his precious blood on the cross. Embracing the cross gives you a prescription for wholeness. It gives you protection. Then I want you to know it gives you provision. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, when he said, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How many of you know that the Lord provides for his people today? Finally, I want you to see that when you embrace the cross, you have the divine presence. The final cry from the cross was, it is finished. At that moment, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. The path into the presence of God has been opened by the cross. You don't have to wait for certain times and seasons to request the help you need. You don't have to have the elders or the pastor or some other person in a position of authority try to act as your intermediary. The cross gives you access anytime with any need. That's what the writer's talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I'd say to you today, are you hurting? Come on in. Are you struggling? Come on in. Are you anxious? Come on in. Are you disappointed? 
morning? Are you fearful? Come on in. Anytime, any way, any need, you have access to all the resources of the Almighty. Just come on in. This is the benefit of those who are dead to self. This is the benefit to those who embrace the cross. It's not an easy path, but I can tell you there is joy in the journey. Stand with me.